if you learn something new each day, if you feel that you're learning something, if you feel that you can feed your curiosity each day, and that's a beautiful feeling. And that makes you, that gives you a whole lot of energy. That gives you the same amount of energy as uh, the adrenaline during a restaurant service. So I think it, curiosity is, is one of the main, it has to be one of the main drivers. If you feel like you want to do something new, if you feel like you want to tweak your, the way you work or your life a little bit, just be curious uh, and don't be afraid. Just throw yourself out there. So today we have John. John is, uh, it's a funny episode now because John is uh, actually my my boss at work at, in a way. And uh, I thought of using this opportunity because it didn't occur to me in the beginning that John could have been one of these, uh, one of the people on this, on this podcast. But uh, while doing the episodes and doing the podcast, I realized one profile possibly missing in this, in this whole uh, fugitive chefs is people who, who, who make these chefs reach these restaurants, people who teach students learning to how to be in a kitchen so that's one part of what john does today he'll tell us more about that the other primary part is what john does at bcc innovation where i work as uh, the coordinator of the whole culinary area all the research and development we do with product developments culinary um, the things we do in the culinary scope of things plus a lot of uh, brand uh, activities with promoting bcc innovation john is responsible of that so John comes from Sweden, but I think before I keep going on this, I would like John to describe who he is. I think it's going to be a very confusing story because John has done a lot of things in these span of years. And so, yeah, John, welcome to the podcast and please tell us where, what, what did you do? How do you end up here? And what is it that you do today? Thank you very much, uh, Furkan. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, who is John? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, John is a Swedish chef, probably the least Swedish Swedish chef that I know, <laughs> at least, um, because I've been living abroad for many, many years. So I grew up in Sweden. Uh, I learned how to cook in Sweden, but uh, for the last more than 15 years, I've been living abroad, working in other countries. And right now, uh, as you mentioned, I'm working at the Basque Culinary Center. I have a, a, a split role between a professor in the university degree, bachelor's degree program. And I also work as a researcher chef in, in BCC Innovation, the research center. Okay, so like how far you've come from the person I'm assuming, uh, think aspiring to be a chef in, in Sweden uh, to what you do today. What like what is the I think all of us take certain mode of uh, mode of entering this career at first for you what was it what was it at that time in Sweden was culinary things I mean being a chef as big in Scandinavia as it today or or how was it back then for you It was actually I just I just happened to end up in in the restaurant business okay. uh, I was studying to be a photographer actually. So I was my interest back in in the day was uh, photography, visual arts, uh, but especially photography. And I was studying uh, to become a photographer, which I thought I would be. Um, during that time, I started working extra in a in a restaurant just to make a little bit of uh, money on the side. Um, and I started off as a dishwasher, actually in a, in a restaurant very close to my parents' house mm -hmm. uh, back home in Sweden. And um, I just kind of fell in love with all that, you know, the passion that you see in the kitchen, 
the chefs working in that restaurant it was a really small restaurant, a really small kitchen team. Um, but still, I mean, you could really feel that passion, that energy uh, radiating out from the kitchen. Uh, and I could I, I was just standing around there when I didn't have anything to do. I was standing around looking at the chefs, just uh, dreaming about uh, someday becoming part of the kitchen team. So uh, it was a seasonal work. So when they asked me to come back the year after, I said, I'll be happy to come back, but I want to work in the kitchen and, and not as a dishwasher. And, mm -hmm. and that's the that's the way it started. And then I continued working in that restaurant and then uh, switched to, to other restaurants in Sweden and then outside of Sweden as well. So it, it just, it's, 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 my career is all based on uh, hard work. There's uh, no cooking school, no culinary school involved. I was thinking about doing a culinary school uh, during the first years, but everyone I talked to um, actually said, don't do it, just work. Mm -hmm. Because you will learn a lot more from working than you will do in, in cooking school. So I actually, I listened to people and I, yeah. I just worked. And uh, well, that's a long, <laughs> that's a very long time ago. That's uh, about 25 years ago now. Mm -hmm. So, so that's a little bit how it started. I just, just happened to <laughs> end wow. up in the, in the restaurant business actually. Wow. That's crazy. I mean, I think, I think these stories uh, you don't hear anymore. I think uh, it has become so, uh, so normal to go to culinary school and start that as a career. Although all of us know how practical knowledge is as important it's actually more important than theoretical uh, maybe things are changing a little bit today but i think still uh, the know-how practically the hands-on experience is so much important but it's, it's interesting to know that you were able to do that in in sweden where you could comfortably go to a school it's not that there were no schools it's not like it wasn't a possibility but then choosing that path i think involves a lot of risk but it's it's amazing how it worked out for you but looking at looking back today um do you think it's something which can be applied today in in in, in not say in sweden or somewhere in europe uh, in the scenario we are right now, especially from you, because you are somebody now educating these people who are signing up for these. How do you see culinary education at large? It is something you think it's key to be in a kitchen or is it an add-on or is it essential? Where do you see it? I think, of course, I think culinary education, if we're talking about schools, has changed a lot as well and has had to change because um, I think it was very basic, but I, I'm talking about the 90s. So mm -hmm. culinary education was very, very basic. Um, I think we've come a long way. What I see and what I work uh, with now today is so much, it's, it's next level of culinary education. So it's a completely different approach, but still the basic of everything is of course, theoretical knowledge, but you have to apply it. I mean, uh, working in a kitchen with food, uh, it is based on that you actually produce something and you need, it's, it's a hands-on experience. It has to be. So, um, so of course, uh, you can do your, your culinary education, but I really think it's, it's important to have periods of actual work in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. Internships are, uh, of course, a great way yeah. to do that. Yeah, I think it's 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 key that a lot of people I think who involved like I I chose the path myself when I did culinary I mean I did hospitality hotel management education but before signing up to that I had lo heard a lot of stories of I think I studied for example 2010 2012 and back then people already were like leaving the industry or complaining about the hours and things so I think it's it's important that you apply 
especially if you're putting a lot of money because most culinary education right now is is at par with any other education it's quite expensive so i think it's important you do the practical things to realize that is it an idea of life you want to live or maybe there are other options to it but coming 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 forward from that you for somebody who just happened to be in the industry um did you have any any aspirations before that would happen just normally that how kitchens would be or did you have any contrast from what you thought kitchen cooking would be or because you saw it from a dishwasher's perspective which is very different from watching masterchef's perspective it's it's a very different uh, world true I, uh, i mean back in the day i think i had not seen any cooking show uh-huh. on tv at all i think they hardly existed back in that day so i had no expectations whatsoever i was there to in, <laughs> In in the first place, I was there to to gain a little bit of money, like mm-hmm. a little bit of pocket money. But then, when I when I got into a relationship with the chefs in the kitchen, it was a totally different thing. It was it was uh, something that that it just brought out a sort of passion in me. So so, but I didn't have any sort of uh, knowledge beforehand of what the restaurant business was like. So I I that kind of. I created that image while working, while being in the center of it. So there was never any kind of clash, you know, between your expectations <laughs> and reality. I've never had that, which I can understand a lot of people have nowadays. Mm-hmm. Uh, you start your culinary education, you you hear some things in school about what what the business is like you see some things on on tv you make up your own image in your head and then you go on your first internship and whoa (laughs) what the hell happened right so i didn't have any of that i i I created my own image of the of the restaurant industry while working in it Mm -hmm. yeah i think it's super interesting how organic it has been for you and i think yeah i wish people can still apply this kind of organic exposure that you got i think it's a it's the best way to to actually put things straight in your life uh, start from the big right from the beginning but tell us a little more about how was it for you like traveling outside sweden with the exposure to the kind of restaurants you worked in sweden compared to maybe there was some kind of cultural shock or things that you learned when you started traveling outside sweden so yeah well while in sweden i didn't actually work a lot with swedish cuisine mm-hmm. so i started working uh, in kind of a french let's say a little bit french swedish fusion mm-hmm. a really small restaurant uh, and then i worked in different types of restaurants and and, and with with diff- different types of cuisines so i kind of never worked with the really really traditional swedish cuisine that's also why i say i'm, I'm probably the least <laughs> swedish swedish chef yeah um so but i always had this kind of curiosity towards other cuisines so mm-hmm. i've always like kind of looked for work in places uh doing cuisines that i didn't know mm-hmm. very much about and that applies also when I when I started uh, traveling and 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 looking for places abroad where to work. Mm-hmm. So I worked for for quite a few years in Sweden, and then I started. You know, I went over to the easiest way, right? Uh, over to over the bridge to Copenhagen. Uh-huh. Started working in Copenhagen, then a little bit further, like Portugal, oh. and and then I went to Italy, and I I worked for many years in Italy because I had this kind of vision I, I i was at a point in my life where i didn't have any like fixed point i didn't have any uh, any place i needed to be mm-hmm. so all of a sudden i just said okay where's the place that you would l- rather go in the whole world to to mm-hmm. learn how to cook their cuisine and and that was italy 
So I ended up in Italy um found uh, a job straight away actually surprisingly fast mm -hmm. wow. <laughs> as a as a foreigner in uh -huh. in an italian restaurant traditional italian restaurant in italy um and then i just i i thought i would stay for like six months just you know how to uh time enough to to learn how to cook some pasta and mm -hmm. uh, yeah. a few risottos uh -huh. and that ended up being uh, nine years oh, all wow. in all so it, Italy for me is really actually home. I feel like Italy is, is, is I have a really strong connection to Italy. Uh, I really loved living there. And I learned so much more than just, you know, uh, so much more cultural aspects mm -hmm. than, just, than just the food and just the pasta and risotto that, yeah. I, that I thought uh, in the beginning. And while I was living in Italy, Italy I just, uh, well, I took the chance in, in down periods. I took the chance to travel okay. a lot, uh, doing internships a little bit uh, in different places of the world as well. So I'd always had this dream of, of going back to the Nordic countries to, to understand a little bit of, let's say, what I had been missing out on mm -hmm. when I didn't give enough uh, credit to yeah. the, 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 the Nordic cuisine back in the day. Mm -hmm. So I went back, to, I went to Noma and, and, and did an internship there. And, and then I also went to Japan to do an internship uh, at a three-star restaurant in, in Tokyo called Ryogin, mm -hmm. uh, which also completely changed my vision of, 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 of cooking, of what it is to dedicate, really dedicate your life and all your passion to cooking. And of course, the techniques they use, the, the raw materials they use in, in Japan, it just completely, as a chef, it completely turns mm -hmm. your world around. So that was a great experience as well. And then I went back to Italy and continued working there, but in a, let's say, more avant-garde style uh, cuisine. And so it's, it's, it's been a lot of, it's coming and going back and forth uh, between different cuisines. Uh, a lot of traveling in, in between. I'm really passionate about traveling and I've been done, doing that since uh, basically since I finished school. So uh, every chance I get, I go traveling somewhere, uh, if possible, to a new place. Yeah. So uh, exploring the world uh, through gastronomy is one of my biggest passions. So that's it's very, very interconnected to to the work I'm doing right yeah. now as well. No, but how cool because I try to like for me, the biggest challenge I see with this is that there are very few ways you can hide or mask, which you should not your own uh, identity of some sorts, because the once you the once once you say Jean Regefol, people assume it's a Swedish guy, comes from Sweden, cooks Swedish food. I think that's a very understandable, like if they see me, uh, Indian guy cooks Indian food and okay, what is the best Indian food? Like the questions are so directed to your beginnings always. So for you, somebody who has not only just traveled, but actually stayed in Italy for nine years, worked over there, now staying in Spain, working for so long, do you feel it's a challenge for you to, to uh, somehow consider that you belong to also this part of the world? Because culinary gastronomy as such is so tied with culture that it could it could be very easy to culture culturally misappropriate things as an outsider and and get accepted i think that's a very big thing and i think you for example in spanish and as well as in italian have been so integrated now i remember the other day we were sitting in the office and talking 
uh, both of us who are non-Spanish people and one of our colleague, colleague Laura just knocks the door and says, do you remember you can also speak in English and we were just speaking in Spanish. So do you think, my question from all of this is that do you think for you uh, not belonging to a culture is a, a hurdle or do you think it's easier for you to see some things which the people inside don't see it? How do you see it? Definitely the second, uh, yeah. the second point there. Uh, I've never, I've never had any aspiration to become a perfect member of a, 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 a culture, uh-huh. because I know I'm, I come from the from the outside, so I, I don't aspire to that. I, I, I prefer to uh, be as free as I can mm-hmm. in in whatever expression, as, yeah, in whatever expression I can create out of mixing cuisines or uh, interpreting cuisines. So I don't really, I don't feel it's a hindrance. I don't feel it as a barrier that I don't know everything about Spanish cuisine. Mm -hmm. Absolutely not, because I know a lot of things about other cuisines. And if I can make a mix out of that, or if I can teach my students about Nordic cuisine Mm -hmm. or whatever Italian cuisine, maybe, Mm -hmm. um, I just see that as a plus. And as you, as you very well know as well, I think uh, it really adds value to our team mm-hmm. being uh, a multicultural team, uh, especially when we, when we try to innovate in the food space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we don't always focus on, on the Spanish market when we try to create a new product. So, so of course, having different cultural and gastronomic backgrounds uh, I think it's a definite, it's a very, very positive thing. And where would you say, especially talking about cuisines as strong, I think Swedish cuisine might not have this uh, challenge, but cuisines like Italy, how, where do you line, like draw the line between traditional and innovation? Because it is traditional to put, uh, to make carbonara with egg yolks, but it cannot be called innovative in, it's necessarily to put cream and bacon and, and green peas. Where do you draw the line? No, that's, these not two? In, that's not innovative. That's just wrong. It's bastardizing. Talking from an Italian point of view. Yeah. So how do you draw this line? How do you draw the line that, okay, you are res- like paying respect and still introducing something new, you know? I'm very much about uh, respect for, for all the... All the cuisines, actually, mm-hmm. and all the ones that I know. Yeah, uh, and I, I never say that I'm doing. If if I do something uh, innovative, or if I change something up a recipe, or if I mix two different things from different cultures, I would never put a label on it to say that this carbonara with with right. uh, bacon and cream is Italian food. I w- I wouldn't do that. I know a lot of people do it. They mm-hmm. say it's it, it's an Italian dish, but I would prefer to say that it's just my cuisine mm-hmm. if I do something as crazy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, that's, that's that's great. I think being I think being honest and sincere and just owning up to something it's 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 brave, but at the same time it's how the the things should be. I would like to know a little more about like we know about your whole time in Italy and the traveling while learning all these all these new cuisines in Japan and and in Denmark. Uh, how was your move to Spain? Like what, uh, I think I've spoken to you about this personally, but I don't know a lot about how did this move happen and how did you actually see yourself leaving kitchen? Because you were stepping into a world where you might not be delivering, I mean, you would be cooking, but not delivering to real customers every day. How was that? How did that happen for you? 
It was also like a lot of things in my life. It, I, it also it just happened. Mm -hmm. So it was nothing uh, I had thought about. It was no special wish that I had to start to start teaching or or or, or enter into the more the research side of food. Mm -hmm. um, basically, I, w I was working. I was running a kitchen in uh, in Rome, and I got headhunted. From, uh -huh. from the Basque Culinary Center and uh, a friend of mine, uh, he was working there and he called me up one day and he said, uh, look, uh, there's an interesting position here for you. If you're if you're up for it, just just tell me and we'll set up a, a call and an interview and whatever. And actually, at that time, I had no wish to to change my job because mm -hmm. I had a, I, uh, I felt really good. I had a, gr a great job in Rome and I. I had no wish to change at that time. So I said no. And one year later, he calls me again with the exact same okay. proposal. And he said, there's still a position for you here if you're, if you're interested. And well, um, during that year, things had changed. I've thought a little bit more about the situation and mm -hmm. what, I, what I was doing. And, and, and my wish to, my curiosity, that I always have a really strong curiosity to to, to, to know more uh, of this of this sector, right? So, uh, so I said yes, sure, <laughs> I'll be there. Wow. I did not know San Sebastian at all. I just knew it was a city in northern Spain. I had no idea what I was uh, getting into, but I said yes. And uh, uh, I think two two months later, I was over here, started working as a full time professor in the bachelor's degree. And, and since that, that uh, I've changed, I've switched uh, more to, to the research, research side. But how does that, that work for somebody who, from the beginning, denied going to culinary education to now becoming a professor? How did that transi transition, like, for sure, was there some amount of fear? Like, what, what are you stepping into? Like, how do you get into a room and teach people about something? H how did you, like, train yourself to accept that new, new possibility of a career, for example? I mean, I didn't have anything against culinary education, so mm -hmm. I, there was no barrier like that. It wasn't like uh, I denied, uh, <laughs> I didn't want to go to, to, to cooking school uh, before, so now I can't become a professor. Mm -hmm. uh, there was nothing like that. But of course, uh, it was a little bit worrying. I, I'd never taught anything in mm -hmm. my life. I, I, I mean, I have pure experience mm -hmm. as a chef in different restaurants. So there was this kind of adaptation period. Mm -hmm. Pretty, it was pretty harsh in the in in the beginning, like let's say the first months to understand like the dynamics of 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 teaching, of interacting with students, how to how to transmit things to students, right? In a, in a, in a way that they they can absorb the information mm -hmm. in, and that they want to absorb the information. So. Um, the first two, three months were pretty, pretty dark. <laughs> and I was also missing cooking a lot. Like, you know, the energy of the kitchen, the adrenaline, the service. I missed that a lot during the first, the first three months, let's say that. And then slowly I got into it. But it was, it was a little bit hard in the beginning. Yes, true. Yeah. And uh, but I think this is also something very, I think I, I should highlight about Basque culinary. The, the point is that um, most careers, like I think teaching career as such, there are people who are like practical engineers who build buildings, become civil engineers. But then there are the teachers in the engineering colleges who do, who, who do their teaching studies and do a master's and doctors. 
and don't know that much practical. I think that's one good thing about the professors basically that most of them have practical exposure, have done something uh, recognizable or, or or worth achieving and then come to this uh, and give that real real life perspective, I think, which is so important, which is why I think your part of uh, your practical experience is so much more valued than maybe skills of how to teach people or personal skills or in, in interactional skills. I think these are things you can learn uh, fairly quicker than like working 10 years in Italy in a different I, culture. I totally agree on that. And I think it's a huge added value that, as you say, um, basically all the professors uh, at the Best Culinary mm -hmm. Center has year-long experiences in the actual uh, out there working in the sector, in this business. And they, they transmit uh, that experience to the students, mm -hmm. which is definitely a huge value. And coming to what you do today, like what, what we do today, more focused on what exactly the, the role you're doing at the moment and, and BCC Innovation at large, how would you define it as a layman? I'm trying to use this opportunity to understand how should I explain to somebody because I always have this challenge of trying to explain what we are doing. How would you say what you're doing at the moment? So I would say that we're working with... Uh, Innovation. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and of course, innovation can be a uh, great many things. For me, innovation is um, creating value in a novel, novel way. If, you, if I have to boil it down, like really, to one, one sentence, it's innovation is creating value in a novel way. Uh, and, that, and, and then we can go into talking about uh, are those, uh, that value, is that, are those new experiences? Are those products? Uh, is it services we're talking about? Processes or, or, or practices? So there are, of course, a lot of subcategories of innovation uh, as well. But, I mean, we work in, uh, in many different ways to help uh, companies, I would say, on the one hand, uh, to innovate mm -hmm. in the food sector uh, through our culinary science through our experience as chefs uh, and then we also do uh, some research of course and we work uh, hand in hand with, with scientists to understand what's behind uh, what we want to eat what's behind the flavors what's behind uh, a restaurant experience why does people want certain things? Why does, does, do people need certain things? Um, so the basic research is, of course, needed. Mm -hmm. And then we apply our experiences uh, as chefs and the culinary science, the, the culinary techniques, uh, our understanding of, uh, let's say, clientele mm -hmm. uh, coming from the restaurant business, of course, and talking especially about like mid to high range restaurants, you know, uh, top notch restaurants um, understanding our clientele is, is, is very important for us as chefs and can also be applied to a certain extent uh, when it comes to creating new experiences in, in other parts of the, of the food sector, right? So even mm -hmm. in the food industry, even when we're thinking about innovating, creating a new product for consumers. Uh, of course, knowing how we do things in the restaurant sector, uh, what are the trends among chefs in the restaurants. It's really, it's, it's an added value, I think, uh, that we chefs could um, bring to the table in a, in a research center, in an innovation center, 
as as we are in the end because i mean we've been working uh so much with uh creativity uh something else that i i don't think that's of course not exclusive to chefs mm -hmm. but in in a work environment with a lot of scientists around you i think we are definitely the more creative part yeah. and and not because who we are as human beings but and mm -hmm. uh, the experience we've had because we teach our, ourselves through the work in the kitchen to see possibilities mm -hmm. and not limits. Right. And that's, that's why you're a little bit more open to looking for solutions than maybe a pure scientist might be. Mm -hmm. And I also think, I mean, the agility that, that chefs have in comparison to, to other profiles is, is something very unique. I mean, we've in a restaurant. What what do you have to do when all of a sudden you have someone uh, sitting down at a table and they're allergic to the main item on the menu or, or or in the in the tasting menu? Yeah, you you change that dish in in, in thirty seconds. Mm -hmm. You you create a new dish, or your purveyor. He doesn't bring the white asparagus in yeah. the morning. Sorry, there's no white asparagus. Okay, let's see. What can we do about that? We'll create a new dish with whatever we have. Uh, let's do artichokes instead. Let's take the sauce that we had on the fish dish. We'll put it with the artichokes and we'll switch it out for the puree. On, you know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of uh, agility involved in our profession, which is uh, also very different from the way you normally work in a research center. So, which of course also can create some sort of uh, difficulties in the collaboration between scientists and chefs, yeah. which we can see every now and then. Um, and I'm not saying, uh, to, to a certain degree, we might not speak the same language, uh -huh. but I also think we work on totally different timelines. So we're, we're almost working in parallel universes you know and mm -hmm. uh, we work on our timeline very agile very quick uh, creative uh, prototyping is immediate whereas scientists need to understand the background of everything need to have all the basic information before you can move on to to the next stage right when whereas chefs are like going 180 an hour uh, if i have an idea Tonight, uh, while I go to sleep, I'll, uh, tomorrow afternoon, I'll have a prototype. Mm -hmm. It might not be as perfect, as detailed, as, as um, standardized as, as, as a scientist's prototype after, after months of work, but it's, it's, it's a different way to work. Mm -hmm. And I think if, if you manage to collaborate mm -hmm. between scientists and chefs, you can really uh, create some awesome synergies. But, but yeah, definitely, this is definitely, I, I believe a lot of uh, these research institutes which work in other sectors, I think the idea of research institute comes already from a different sector, maybe like medical sector or the scientific sector, which is why it's not as applicable to gastronomy, but just copy pasting it. And I, I love the that BC Innovation being the world's first technological sector in this sector has chosen this model where it uses the best of both worlds because I think it can be, yeah. I think chefs understand a lot that imperfectionism is not something very completely negative because there is, there is a, yeah, you can see the benefits of it when you want to make something reach its end product, but by compromising on some, some fronts, I think it's completely all right. It also sometimes makes you reach new possibilities because if you just think the A has to reach B, 
you might never explore the other 24 possibilities by making those errors and mistakes and i think this is something we although i think one thing bad about us as chefs i i'm saying that normal restaurant chefs that most of the things are not documented how that c or d is reached but i love that how we do it is actually we have these proofs of documentation where i think it's useful we have the scientist part which is watching us and observing us and yeah hand in hand trying to trying to create this synergy but uh, i think most people listening to us are are chefs so i will not go much into the scientific part of things but in the culinary department uh, what would you say in 2023 as uh, a technological center in gastronomy based in basque country which is so is so much the center of i would say europe in terms of terms of how gastronomy moves what are the few principal things that you could share that we are working on or if you not not just uh, certain projects but like lines of thoughts or lines of work that we are working on th- these days i would say one like one of the main things that everyone's working on <laughs> lately <laughs> if, at least if you're in the research center uh, area uh, everyone's working on how to feed uh, the world population uh, with alternative proteins in alternative ways uh, yeah especially focused on every, every, the world the word you're hearing all the time is alternative proteins alternative proteins how can we get it out to the masses mm-hmm. because for us i mean it it's been years already we've we've heard it we're almost tired of yeah. of hearing alternative proteins but i mean it hasn't reached the masses yet so yeah. there's still a long way to go and there's a lot of work we had to uh, put into this work and time and money mm-hmm. um but so it it's going to be for many many years still we will have to work on creating products that fit into the market mm-hmm. uh based on alternatives to 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 meat basically yeah. um and that's that's one of our main lines of of research uh right now i would say research uh, and also development of 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 new products um and there i i think it's really uh, super important to to understand the consumers because you know in the restaurant when we want to innovate we always go so we want to be really disruptive right we want to create something so far from anything that our clients know already mm-hmm. so it's like overwhelmingly disruptive innovation mm-hmm. uh and and i think the clientele in certain restaurants especially in top restaurants uh like we know them yeah. uh that's that's what they expect they expect to be surprised every time get a completely new dish with uh you know new ingredients new flavors new aromas uh new new plateware new ways of plating new ways of eating new experiences mm-hmm. but it doesn't work the same way in the consumer food uh area right. because there uh the, the needs they're not experiences in that sense they're mm-hmm. more basic needs of eating eating in a way that you like eating maybe healthy food if the, if that's that's for you so innovations in in the consumer food is much much more um let's say it can't be that disruptive because then you end up with products that are way too far from uh what people can actually un- understand there's no kind of uh anchorage to a known product mm-hmm. um 
for consumers. And that's one of the problems I think we have with, with the alternative proteins right now. Uh, why is it that when we create new products with alternative proteins, mm -hmm. we always try to make them look and feel and taste like meat products or mm -hmm. well-known traditional uh, protein uh, products? So I think it's a little bit, uh, it, it, it's that time for, uh, for the consumer market to adapt to a new reality. But that takes a lot of time. It's yeah. it's not like a restaurant client where where uh, maybe every six months they come back to a restaurant and they expect something new. Mm -hmm. The consumer market is totally totally different. It's uh, it's a period of adaptation. It it's incremental uh, uh, innovation. You build upon something that's already well known, already existing, and you make small tweaks, small changes to it all the time. Otherwise, you you your consumers. They won't. They don't understand you. Yeah. You're you're too far away from their expectations. I think it's a very important. I mean, it's it is it's in, inevitable that this subject will be spoken about again and again. We'll hear more of it all the time. Um, and and the same thing. Like I was recently in Switzerland on a panel with other people talking on the same subject, but all of them had, I think, the role we play here. I find it so important because on the panel were people from two different brands. I wouldn't name them, but two different brands doing leading fish and meat products in alternative. Uh, uh, protein uh, basis of them but I think everybody in this sector at the moment has uh, um, aspirations very personal to them and and goals very personal to their themselves rather than the whole uh, I think the whole sector of people who are eating this every consumer and I think which is why our perspective is so important because uh, say governments lobbying for this or the red tape behind this is one motive they have Every company has their own motive to find themselves to be the most innovative in the sector, which is why I feel, uh, although we are publicly and privately funded, I think our innovation is very much independent because we are just doing it because we want to, we are curious about, uh, we wouldn't earn more because we innovate something new, but it's it's so pure, the innovation behind it. But how much do you think is uh, education a part of this? Do you think, uh, because I see many brands in the whole alternative protein sector pushing for, uh, as you said, replicating rather than finding this new source or, or redefining a new, maybe it's a longer process to make a new branch of a new sort of PS, SPU, which is completely independent. How much do you think is education a part of this? Educating, um, I would say education is part of it, as in educating the consumers. Mm -hmm. uh, in that sense, of course, it's very much part of it, but it's really a slow process. Yeah. It is not like uh, education where you tell a student that this is the way it is mm -hmm. and uh, these are the facts and, and you show it to them and, and, and they maybe change opinion there and then. Consumers are very much slow. That, that, that's tra that transition will be so much slower. But of course, it's, it's, it's happening. It's happening in parallel with these products that, that replicates exactly... Uh, let's say, a, a vegan product that replicates exactly a, a hamburger. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, the consumers are opening up to other alternatives that doesn't look like something mm -hmm. well-known or something we used to eat uh, <laughs> <laughs> or they used to eat in the past. Yeah. So, so it's, of course, it's a, it's a very important part, education. And I'm seeing that in a lot of uh, big European projects that we're participating in. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of weight put on education for the consumers. Mm -hmm. So um, 
certain projects uh, that are aiming at creating new novel proteins, mm -hmm. uh, creating new products for the market, but also a lot of weight on on educating the consumers through campaigns, through trying to reach the consumers in different ways and, and, and slowly but surely um, change their uh, openness to, to let's say, novelty in the sense of, of, of new products, right? I think that's so important. Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, the whole European product, like projects that we are doing, example, the one we are doing with educating how school students should eat school meals in there in countries like Egypt and Lebanon, which we are from a position of privilege, we cannot ask them to eat uh, a, a, a seitan or something, a, a new mycelium-based steak. But what do you think about, I mean, I understand the concept of alternative proteins being a, a replacement in your diet and bringing down the whole carbon footprint that your meal can have on the world. What about first-generation consumers now, people who have not consumed meat? I think, uh, like, recently in the same panel, I was given an example that a person was very proud that their nephew now eats chile con carne. For them, it's with uh, this fake uh, meat today. But I find that very difficult to accept because me coming from India, I, I, I had to eat a lot of vegetarian food without having to have these fake uh, replacements to it. Um, don't you think that we have a chance with the new generation to educate them? I would say not culinary education. I would say primary education. Um, it's a school level or at what they eat every day to just introduce uh, not these ultra-processed foods and have... I understand the need of ultra-processed for replacing the meat, but then you have a new customer which is being born every day as we speak. Don't you think it should be more integral part of like early stage edu education? I think that's uh, that's really a, a super important point for the future. The education on food, mm -hmm. but on a very, very primary level uh, in schools for for really small children to make it natural. Uh, talking about different types of food and understanding what's out there um, and the consumption of 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 meat. I mean, you you need to understand that part as well because it's it's been part of our diet for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not going to go away from one day to the, to another. Mm -hmm. So you need to understand that part as well. But you need to understand the the whole the whole. Um, all, all all that's out there like all the alternatives and and how you and how you use them and at, that it's supposed to be natural it's not supposed to be a substitute one day a week for the meat yeah. no it, it, it's just another it's another food mm -hmm. and it's always there it's it's going to be available um so i think at a school level you mentioned the the, the project that we're doing around the mediterranean uh basin uh, with different countries where we actually work with schools as well, with uh, small kids in school to understand um, a little bit what type of food they like, try to tweak their, uh, not tweak, but, but uh, make them remain within a Mediterranean diet mm -hmm. uh, in, a, in a very healthy way. So there's, of course, also education involved. There's uh, a lot of talk with the children on the food as a topic um, and, and telling and, and, and just opening up their, their mind a little bit about, about food. And, and so it's something natural to talk about with, with food. Yeah, I think, I think I will try to stride this conversation a little away from alternative protein now, but I think we've got the message <laughs> out because I think this is something we are going to listen so much about. And 
I'm sure our own opinions are going to change about this like everything maybe tomorrow we are saying completely something different but it's it's very interesting to hear but bringing the focus more on your job today that you do because for me I mean for you you've been there been here for for years now in this profession for me it's something I've just started less than a year ago and um, I used to be someone who stayed at 26 uh, maybe 2 years ago at 24 aspiring that the epitome of reaching excellency in gastronomy is having if not having a fine dining restaurant at least heading a fine dining restaurant or being in that uh being in that you know that that whole culture of being in this fine dining which which kind of infects you and makes you believe in in this bubble that it's it's something that's so important everybody's talking about this and everybody in the world who knows food is talking about it but at the end when you come out of it you'll realize that it is definitely very important it shows what can be done with food at that level compared to the job you do today which is that uh, maybe this project that people are hearing today at the first time they are listening that a, a center based in the basque country in a small town is is innovating food in egypt in the school kid eats um, how do you see the role of us associating uh, values of excellency to fame or to to achieving uh, this being on these lists or things like this um, although i feel personally that impact you make or the impact an r&d chef of the brand pepsico or any any major food brand makes is so much more reachable i think the p- amount of people you reach on a day is much more than i would say if you were today a fine dining chef how do you have your values changed compared to what is it for you personally to excel in gastronomy i've probably gone through all the different <laughs> uh, you know uh, eras of uh, of being as an aspiring chef right mm-hmm. Uh, at one point you want to have your own restaurant you want yeah. to become a tr- three michelin star chef you 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 want to go for that like that's the, your only goal mm-hmm. and then it changes and then all of a sudden you want to learn more about another uh, another uh, gastronomic culture you want to mm-hmm. and you want to travel and you leave the three star three michelin star a little bit behind and then you uh, <laughs> and then you uh, experience something new and 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 a new door opens up and and you I've kind of just you know floated from uh goal to goal in that sense mm-hmm. of course I've been through uh the the wish to you know be on on television and mm-hmm. and become a really famous chef and have my own restaurant mm-hmm. but it changes it changes with uh more knowledge more experience uh all of a sudden you say no if if i open a restaurant i want it to be something really traditional i want to it to show traditional values i want it to communicate uh, a gastronomic culture from a from a certain place uh and then all of a sudden you enter into the realm of teaching mm-hmm. which is completely different and then you go to to research and work as a research chef and and you work with huge food companies mm-hmm. and that's also definitely been a, a like a pivoting point for me where where I felt that okay I think I'm I don't really belong to the uh that sort of you know uh the restaurant business just looking for uh being super disruptive and innovative and avant-garde Uh, but i think exactly as you say i i i very much agree with that that the amount of people we could reach with a new product uh, let's say a, a healthier version of a, a, a of a product that sells a lot in the market mm-hmm. the impact is so much bigger 
than what we can do in a restaurant with 40 covers a night. Sure, uh, you could have more fame, you could be more well-known as a person, mm -hmm. but the impact is completely different. And I think it's, um, it's, it's, it's different ways of working, but I've, it's definitely changed my vision of how I can make an impact um, in, in the end consumer or client, because I usually talk about clients when I talk about the restaurant business and, and uh, the food industry, and then I talk about consumers. Mm -hmm. so, so for me, it's, uh, it's, it's changed slowly but surely uh, into uh, that I think I can actually nowadays make bigger impact um, working with the food industry, working on a, on a, on a much larger scale than just uh, in, a, in a single restaurant with 40 covers a night. Wow. And I think, I mean, all that you've said, all that you have, uh, like the way you've drawn somehow the, your, your progress in this career, in this sector itself, it's, it's quite, uh, I'm not saying this to impress you or anything, but it's, it's astonishing because it's surprising a, a, a guy from Sweden would enter the industry without studying, then go on to travel, then go on to reach places like Noma and Region, and then come to Italy and open uh, and, and be in restaurants for nine years and then end up in research. And I think from this, I mean, the idea of this podcast in the beginning now, I mean, 13 episodes down was that because I myself entered this job, assuming that actually when I applied, I don't know if I've shared with you, I applied the job, assuming that it's an R&D chef teaching students. And I thought like I have to create material for researching material for how to teach students. So I didn't even know there are people focused on researching the future of gastronomy or working with how insects can be the source of protein for senior citizens and things like that. But I think the idea with this podcast is to show people that it's not all about, first of all, being financially, uh, I would say somehow having a very strong financial base for aspiring careers, which are interesting. I think that is one of the, I think in your whole career that you've drawn for us, it's never uh, been a reason that your financial methods could stop you, your education could stop you. I mean, it's just about daring to dream. And with this, what I want to say to people is that people who are aspiring to say not be in your job, but maybe head the fermentation department of a mycelium alternative protein uh, company, they can aspire without knowing everything about it and learn on the go, you know. So what would you say to people like this who are aspiring? What anecdotes would you give from your career that that they should dare to, you know, take that step and, and I mean, stay in the restaurants if that is what you aspire to do, but don't stay in there just because you're scared of doing something else. No, and I would say uh, definitely just throw yourself out there. Uh, I've always done that. I've always <laughs> just like uh, gone with the flow in uh -huh. that sense. And uh, maybe it's also because of my personality that the way I am as a person. But I always manage to adapt in a, in a good way to, mm -hmm. to new roles. And I think that's exactly what I have done in, in, in this last role as a researcher chef. I'm, I'm not a scientist uh, at all. Mm -hmm. I have <laughs> very little clue about uh, the science, I have, uh, the real science, so to say. Mm -hmm. Um, but you can always learn. I mean, you learn as you go. Um, and and that's, a very, that's also a very inspiring thing because if you learn something new each day, if you feel that you're learning something, if you feel that you can feed your curiosity each day, uh, that's a beautiful feeling. And that, makes you, that gives you a whole lot of energy. That gives you the same amount of energy as, as uh, the adrenaline during a restaurant 
service. Mm -hmm. So, so I think it, curiosity is is one of the main. It has to be one of the main drivers. If you feel like you want to do something new, if you feel like you can, you want to tweak your the way you work or your life a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, just be curious uh, and don't be afraid. Just throw yourself. Just put yourself out there on on the line a little bit and just uh, just try it. I mean, you can always go back if it doesn't work yeah. out. There's exactly. always going to be work in the kitchens. Exactly. So, but I, I've never regretted at all um, any of my career moves, yeah. actually, because because I, I adapt in, in in a good way, and I think most people are are able to do that. It's probably just like the first step when you think about it. Should I? Should I not? Mm -hmm. um, but once you're once you're there. You just uh, and and I I especially think chefs are good at that. Yeah. To adapting to new environments, to new of new ways of working. Uh, it's it's a little bit what we talked about before that agility, right? That that way uh, of looking at things, mm -hmm. putting things into perspective, and um, and finding solutions to to problems. We're we're great at that. Yeah. So you can do that with your own career as well mm -hmm. yeah i think that's that's a very good good lesson to take back i think we should stop idealizing i think in some way most of us have been idealizing a lot of um, either people persons restaurants i think it's much more important to say i i would say idealize things like the values you're saying of that risking and i mean i think as you said all chefs are already have these these skills in their bag it's just about risking it knowing that if you're not learning something tomorrow in the place you are, you're already losing. So there's, there's nothing more to lose. So I think it's, it's worth, worth taking the risk. So yeah, with this, I would like to thank you, John, for this time. It's been, uh, for me, who works with you every day, so much more to learn. So I can only imagine the people listening to this. There's so much to take back from this. And yeah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Furkan. It was a pleasure. So that's it from this week's episode of Boyatras, a podcast where we bring to you the voice of the fugitive chefs. If you like listening to these interviews, do subscribe to us so that you do not miss out on any of these episodes. You can also find us on Instagram and YouTube as Boyatras Podcast. We release new episodes every Tuesday, alternating between English and Spanish.